Hey, before we start this episode, just want to remind you that the Fearless Woman's Guide to Starting a Business is available everywhere that you like to buy books, and you can get it in paperback, Kindle, and even as an audiobook. I'll have links on where you can purchase in the podcast notes. Okay, back onto the show. You are listening to One Broken Mom, a podcast dedicated to raising awareness about mental health, parenting, and self-improvement. I'm the host, Ami Quirconi. One Broken Mom is not a family show. It is intended for adults only and may contain adult language. Sometimes the topics are serious, but you can count on the episodes to be entertaining. Also, One Broken Mom is not offering any psychiatric or medical diagnosis. We're just here giving away useful and important information. So if you're ready to hear real talk by real people so that we can all get better together, then you're in the right place and welcome. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are now in season three of One Broken Mom, and I'm super excited to have back with me a person that I'm just has been a, a big part of the show, a big uh, guest that a lot of you have really resonated with, really loved hearing about. Um, it is Wendy Bahari, and she's the author of Disarming the Narcissist. And of course, there'll be links for being able to get that book. Um, you've heard us talk a, a, an awful lot about narcissism and narcissistic personality disorders as they mainly pertain to our personal lives. But I have her on today to talk about how ego and dysfunction actually can play out in business relationships. Um, because we can actually see this in leadership at the global um, levels and as well as our local levels. But we also, um, I know from my experience as a business coach and also just, you know, we all go to a job. Most of us go to a job every day. Um, we can see where uh, ego and dysfunction can actually pop up in our organizations that we work in. And they don't necessarily have to happen in people that are in a leadership or a management role per se, but we still have people around us that may be driven by something that may be more independent and egocentric motivators that um, impacts our work experience with them and may even be impacting ourselves. So welcome back to the show, Wendy. Thank you, Ami. It's so great to be back with you. I, well, we were talking offline um, right now. Um, we are recording this. It is March 20th of 2020. Um, this episode's not going to publish until May, but it's worth noting for historic purposes that we're going to document that we're in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, I'm in Washington State, mm -hmm. and in particular the Seattle area, which um, where everybody will know and they'll read in the history books, this is where it began in the United States. So mm -hmm. it's been an interesting and surreal uh, month now of living here. Uh, you are out on the East Coast, though. You're in the New Jersey area. Is that correct? That's right. Okay. Yeah, and New York's cases have just overtaken Washington's cases as we're as we're talking about this right now. So there's a lot of activity going on in your area too for people, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's a scary time. You know, there's a lot of anxiety looming large, and um, you know, we'll see. We're we're doing the best we can to do our part to stay put. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, it's interesting. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit here early before we get into the interview about this, because there is a lot going on. And I've noticed, um, you know, you know, social media, a lot of us are working from home, obviously. And so we're mm -hmm. tapping into social media a little bit more. And there's such a variety of expressions out there of how people are handling this 
from uh, being really angry to being in denial to being um, some people really openly sharing how surprised they are by their emotions just being right at the surface that they don't think that they're panicked and they think they're holding everything together but at the same time find that it's very easy for them to be um, you know to break down and cry or to get very mad at somebody Um, are you seeing any increases in requests for your services right now through this time from the from the people that you work with and your patients yeah, absolutely. There's definitely been a rise. It's, um, you know, it's interesting because there's this thing I've been talking to a lot of my patients about, which is it's reasonable, right? It's reasonable for all of us to be feeling afraid, to feel anxious, to feel, feel worried for our own health, for the health of our loved ones, especially if you have elder parents or other people that you care about who have underlying health conditions. This is all reasonable you know, anxiety. It's not what we would call the pathology of anxiety. But then, you know, there are those where the intensity at times can become stronger. So it's like there's another little bell that's going off and it's often happening behind the scenes. It's dredging up something that may be very old and unrecognizable in the present moment. So you're feeling an intensity because deep down, you know, you dive in deep and you find darker moments in once upon a time where there may have been trauma, abuse, rejection, loss, um, feeling alone, feeling deprived. People are feeling alone. And while there's plenty to do, we can be creative and find things to do and connect like this. I was excited to sit down with you today. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Uh, But you know, there is this aloneness kind of quality, this isolation. And if that's a part of your background experience of maybe being bullied or rejected or shut out, it can at times, you know, that can get stirred up when you're feeling upset in this very reasonably, you know, anxious time. Um, and so we have to look, you know, at, at kind of look at levels of intensity and see if we can get a little deeper within ourselves and, and calm those parts of us that might be, you know, getting um, stirred up in memory. Mm-hmm. Do you, are there any things that you've been uh, suggesting for people in particular, especially since um, we're all sheltering in place, you know, started mm-hmm. off as social distancing and now it is, um, you know, the next level, which is staying home and not going mm-hmm. out. And as we know, the, you know, we're wired to connect with one another. I I mean, our nervous systems prosper when we're able to be around people, especially if they're warm and supportive. And so, so how do, how do you um, suggest people that are feeling particularly lonely in their homes? How do they maintain and strengthen that part of it so that they don't become overwhelmed by that loneliness? To whatever degree, if they can connect like this on, you know, through virtual experiences, get on the phone, talk to people. Um, connect online, but also if you're really, you know, you're you're doing all that and you're still struggling, there's this beautiful strategy called sensory experience where, you know, you pay attention to the fact that something in your body is sending a signal that feels a bit unbearable in this moment. And you may not know what it is, or you may, and if you know what it is, then you can really reach in and embrace that vulnerable part of you from once upon a time. Just really hold yourself with a lot of tender, loving care. Um, If you're not quite sure what it is, you can take a respite just by noticing where you're feeling it in your body, right? Where is that intensity coming up? Where is it up here? Is it in my gut? Is it just in my head? Where is it? I'm tense. I'm a little nauseous. I'm upset. 
and look for a place. I mean, this is a, a beautiful strategy from a colleague of mine who's really an expert in this area of helping people when trauma gets triggered to look for that place in your body that's still. So while I have all this upset that I'm feeling in this moment, where is that place in my body that's actually calm and still? And it might be your little pinky. So you can just take your attention over there to your little pinky and just stay there for a moment and notice the stillness and the quiet and take some breaths and the peace and your little pinky. And then just slowly you can slide back into that distressful place and mm, yeah, still pretty upset. Slide back again, bring your attention here. There's something very empowering when we direct our attention to the places in our body that are calm mm -hmm. and we stay there. And we come back and you just sort of change direction. It will subside in time. It's hard. And I think we'll all need practices and just breathing and connecting as much as we can with others and noticing our body and remembering our little selves that may be getting somewhat tormented during these times because of memories that are getting stirred up. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. And with the, um, you know, the added pressure, you know, there's this, this entirely large dynamic of, of where, you know, some small populations of people are more vulnerable. They happen mm -hmm. to be parents for some people. Yeah. Um, and so if you have a, um, I think, a, a complicated relationship with your parent, and now they're in a vulnerable state, I can imagine that that just really churns up a lot of really complicated and stressful emotions sure. about like what to do, you know, how should sure. I do that? And, you know, in my experience, personal experience, you know, dealing with, um, with where the narcissistic personalities have weaved in and out of my life, um, the, sometimes they do originate in the home. That's where they began. And then they carried out into, you know, all the other personal relationships thereafter. Yeah. Um, if we're dealing with somebody that is of that mindset right now, they, I would imagine they, their demands have increased dramatically at this point in time, especially if they're concerned about their own safety and their own well-being and their own needs, right? Like before yeah. these were people that were really needy to begin with. <laughs> and now you've got this amplified in some ways. Um, you know, how do we fortify ourselves even more in a time mm. like this? Because this mm. can be, I think, a, you, know, um, you know, that's that extra level of stress that not a lot of people really think about um, outside mm -hmm. of that. But I, I know for the people listening to One Broken Mom, this is sometimes their reality. They've got that, that worrisome parent now who's now even more, more so. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And they can be more demanding and that parent can be actually ent feel entitled to have your full attention and cooperation at a time like this as, you know, is, is kind of what they've always done, but it, now it's ramped up as you just said so beautifully. And you really have to ask yourself that question. What is the cost to me? What is the consequence to me of stepping beyond my own boundary now? Um, if I don't reach out, will I live in the land of regret? You know, will I be able to bear that? If I do reach out, will I be lambasting myself for having crossed that line that I promised I would never break? You know, I'd always keep that limit intact and I've worked so hard to form that limit with this very difficult narcissistic parent. Um, so it's really engaging in a very thoughtful dialogue with your healthy adult self, but this is the key. You want to be sure that it doesn't become your little self, your most vulnerable self, 
who's engaged in this conversation because then it's a no win. You know, for your little self, it's all give in, submit, um, get stepped on again, uh, be taken advantage of, feel lost, feel disempowered. This really has to be a thoughtful decision executed by your healthy adult self. So you want to check, stop, breathe, make sure this is the adult you who's taking a look at this cost-benefit analysis and figuring out what can I do that would come from the generosity of my heart just towards another human being who's at risk versus what do I do that you know might really put me, put me in emotional risk mm-hmm. uh, if I step too far in right now. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's good. Um, because a lot of us are definitely vacillating much more between little self, adult self, yeah. little self, adult self. Um, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I have had to, and I, this actually started and not a lot of people know this. In fact, very few people, except for some folks close to me, um, you know, I, as we're part of our conversation today is going to be some things that are going to appear in a book that I have coming out later in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I found out the news, um, that the publisher, um, had accepted the proposal and was ready to, um, help me bring this dream to life. Um, I started with a big high point followed by a complete low point because I was used to the script in my head of you never get anything that you want. You know, mm-hmm. you can hope and dream all you want, but eventually it's going to like, you're never going to get it. Like you're going to die. And I literally had those thoughts like right after I got it, that I was probably never going to live to see my book being published. And so <laughs> now there's this pandemic <laughs> here and I'm just like, you know, biting my nails, but I've had to, you know, and everybody's like, I mean, karma doesn't work like that. <laughs> you know? It's like, they're unrelated. So don't worry about those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. But you know, there, there is this, you know, for people that have maybe, um, uh, thoughts, you know, sometimes that is a, that was a survival tactic for me or kind of a reality for me of, of disappointment, you know, that goes back to childhood. And so when we're confronted with, um, you know, impending doom and death around us, um, whether we're, you know, a factor in that or not, it, that can also kind of start to conjure up those things of disappointment can feel like death, I guess is what I'm saying. And that, um, and especially as a child, that's how it, it's sensed is everything dies. My ideas die. My dreams die. Who I really am going to be is never going to come to life. It's never going to come to fruition. And then when you have death really laced in, it seems like that could be a part of that underlying anxiety that people, um, you know, end up fearing. And I feel like for me, that's why some of my surfaces are, you know, my emotions are at the surface really close because I'm battling back down those unfounded childhood fears, mm, you know, yeah. from things. And I don't know how many other people might be feeling a little mm. bit like that as well. That is an absolutely beautiful example of what I was saying about how our earlier experiences get caught in the mix at times like this. We call this pandemic a condition, you know, for activating those types of early experiences. And then it becomes really complicated, as you just described so well. It's you know, is this my punishment? Is this my ultimate punishment? Because I knew one day I would just be punished. I know that's how the world works. I knew it was just a matter of time before I would be all alone and lost and ultimately, you know, dead, you know, punished for being the bad, unlovable me that I felt when I was very little. And wow, you know, this is, this is that condition that can reach and we call it like the fertile soil for our early maladaptive schemas, right? These life themes, 
that have been in there, maybe even embedded for such a long time that we've forgotten about them, thankfully. But mm -hmm. now under this condition, they get reawakened. And here we are, like, as you just said, you know, now I'm not going to live to realize my dream. You know, it was bound to happen. And it's sort of like this predictor of truth and life that comes and we have to really pay attention so that we can say, no, that was then, that was then. And it wasn't even true then. What was right. true then that I, was that I was a, a little thing who was a victim of circumstances that were horrific and unfair and I was burdened and it wasn't just, and I survived it. And, but there's no truth in the messages I was given as a result of those experiences. So you know, teasing out the message from the experience is so critical in times like this. Mm -hmm. because yeah. it's easy to reattach it to this time right I and I felt kind of grateful for the fact that I actually had my moment back in January where I was like because <laughs> it, it, it the way it the way it struck me was hold on a second because I have all these journals I have all these things that I had written when I was a you know when I was a, a, a teenager and, and before I became a teenager and I remembered god you kept writing about the girl who got who became famous was a rock star was a whatever but then she died and I said, you're, you're replaying your childhood story in your head. You're replaying your literature that you wrote as a kid. And once I did that and I realized that I had just made a life-size version or, you know, a real version of what I'd been writing about, I was like, okay, this is trauma, <laughs> you know? And yes. then it was meditating yes. and it was reminding myself that, no, you've just got this really well-rehearsed story in your head that you've been playing over and over again in order to cope and deal when, he, when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and here you are. And so then, then it's like, okay, then a pandemic lands at your doorstep and you're like, wow, I've already gone through this. Like just a couple months ago, I already kind of went through this mental exercise, but not everybody had that benefit. So people, right. like you just said, this is a whole different thing. And mm -hmm. a lot of things that we didn't even know, you know, were going to bother us or bother us are coming up because we've all been thrust into something out of the, you know, out of the extreme ordinary for everyone. You know. Yeah, it goes back to that thing I've said before, where it's the magnificence of the brain, where the brain is an amazing organ, right? It's so chock full of, you know, imagination, creativity, thoughtfulness, etc. But it's also stupid, because it can't tell time. It just doesn't tell time so well. So here we are, as if it's not bad enough dealing with coronavirus, that, you know, the brain is now dredging up things from our once upon a time. And when you tell that story, that personal experience, you know, I just want to, you know, I just want to reach in and say to little Ami, you know, you're fine. You're really good. You know, it's all, it's all good. We got you now, you know? And that's what I think each of us has to do for our little self is like, I got you, you know, that's the old, that, that was then that's old. That's once upon a time. You're with me now. And yeah, it's a scary time right now, but I'm here and I'm a grown up and we're going to do everything we can to be safe, mm -hmm. right? It's not your fault and it's not, you know, you didn't make anything bad happen and, not, you know, I'm not going to let anything happen to you. The same way we would speak to our children, you know, if we had little ones, the way we would talk to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And some people, you know, have that benefit. And I, like I've said before that I think that, uh, children do help us realize how we should be talking to ourselves because yes. we would never say the things to ourselves, to our kids. We know instinctively that, you know, that that's not what they need mm -hmm. to hear. Well, I'd say some of us know instinctively, but in general, we know, um, that are, we're motivated to protect them as much as possible, mm -hmm. but we forget to protect ourselves. So, yeah. um, now, so I've, 
this will lead into uh, this conversation. I think this is important. And so for everybody that's listening, um, uh, this is, I'm clipping this out. I'm going to publish this right away so that uh, people between seasons will be able to hear this discussion because it's relevant today. Um, and so then what you're going to hear is probably a replay of this maybe in a couple of months, but then I'm going to go into what I, what we were going to talk about, which is this ego and leadership. Mm -hmm. And so the stress that we've just described is undoubtedly going to creep up in work. <laughs> um, and so what do you recommend for organizations and businesses to handle and address the mental health concerns and the mental well-being of their employees during times like this? Because I think um, some people isolate business brain from personal brain and think that we can just leave everything at the doorstep. But um, right now, businesses have this new complexity on top of them with their employee staff, all of us going through whatever versions we've got going in. So um, do you have any advice for companies right now with handling um, a workforce that's under a lot of duress? Yeah, now more than ever, I think the word empathy, which you know I'm an empathy junkie and I always talk about empathy and the power of it, but I think now more than ever, everyone needs to engage, especially leaders and people running organizations, they need to engage in empathy. I mean, look, look at leaders are going through it too. People running their own companies are experiencing a lot of fear and, and worry. We've got to remember that, you know, the employees and all the people who come in and make for this, this whole that comes together, there's a lot of suffering going on. And we want to take our time to try to imagine getting into the bones of someone else's experience and know that there's fear and there's doubt and there's worry and there's, you know, there's real crises for so many people who just are not quite sure how they're going to put food on their table or pay their bills. Um, how they're going to readjust. It's that whole, you know, transitioning when we get back to work, transitioning into being among one another again. And it will be strange. And there will be tendencies towards, you know, fear and, and the fear of disruption or the rug getting pulled out from under us once again. So I think, you know, lots of empathy. I, if I were, you know, encouraging leaders, I would say, you know, have some roundtables, sit down with people, you know, host some opportunities just to talk and share what it's been like and what you need to feel strong and fortified going forward. Find out what people need. And I don't mean just the tangible things. What do they need in the way of just reassurances or, you know, thanks for being there. Thanks for hanging in there, you know, something um, that, that might provide encouragement in a sense of, you know, I see you and I know you. And I know this is, this is a hard experience to live through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great idea, especially now that a lot of companies are figuring out how to do web conferencing for the first time. So <laughs> out of necessity, but it is an opportunity and I've encouraged other people to do that, you know, instead of just talking on the phone, FaceTiming more often, yeah. um, you know, I know the, the nursing company that I work with during the day, um, was relatively resistant to web conferencing. I kept pushing it for quite a while. Um, and then now all of a sudden we're all getting online and we're all getting past our fears of being seen yeah. without our makeup on or in our sweats and, <laughs> you know, and all that other stuff. Um, but your point of being able to bring people together, you know, maybe um, periodically to just touch base face to face with as many people as yeah. possible in your organization is really, I think that's a really great idea. So if anybody listening there, if you have opportunities to do that, find ways um, to reconnect um, with your maybe some of your customers even or um, definitely within your people in your company. Mm -hmm. So, so 
this is going to start to tie in. Um, we talk about the concept of ego and somebody who may be more easily wounded if their ideas are not heard, or they may be too controlling and forceful even on days without pandemics afoot. Um, and so I wanted you to uh, start off with talking about this research project that you did with Michael Watkins and talking about dysfunction in organizations and business. How did, how did that get started? Where did you guys uh, begin to put this together? Well, Michael is an extraordinary man in terms of his work in leadership and um, coaching leaders and dealing with the whole uh, system of onboarding and people transitioning. And so we began talking. He was very fascinated by schema therapy, had done some reading on his own, and was interested in how this might apply to leadership. He was interested in my work with narcissism and was also interested in how narcissists end up in leadership roles so often. Um, not all of them, but you know, many do. And so we began just kind of thinking about this together, looking at uh, leaders. He actually installed the inventories to take a look at common life traps or schemas, as we call them, that might be in the way, get in the way of leadership. Um, on the one hand, may also be in part responsible for the success of many leaders. You know, if you have, for example, what we call unrelenting standards, meaning these incredibly high standards where nothing is ever good enough and you can always do better, well, you know, that can make for some incredible leaders out there because they're always working hard, trying harder, doing their best. Um, by selection, they're typically among some of the brightest. And so that becomes an asset to a company but not always an asset when it comes to interpersonal relationships because the expectations and the sense of entitlement that everyone else be exactly the same and you know really forfeit their families their needs their their sleep and everything else that goes into being a bit of a at times workaholic or too mo too performance oriented can be problematic and so we were looking at you know kind of the fallout areas and um you know, some of the problems that occur as a result. I mean, again, in leadership itself, or I, as I always say, give me the narcissistic surgeon who is um, so, has such high unrelenting standards, is so precise, is very compulsive, very commanding, um, really, really absorbed in being a superhero at his work. I'll take that surgeon any day, but I don't want to live with him. Don't send him home with me, right? So it's that difference between, you know, being able to do a masterful job and where it falls apart when it comes to the interpersonal relationships with others. And how do we find a bridge to integrate the two so that you can be really good at what you do and take pride and, you know, be a master in your, in your area, but also still be able to find ways to integrate your yourself personally with others you know be a leader of not just in terms of um, the bottom line but of people you know working together coming together who have um, varieties of their own personal life experiences and needs and you know are really doing their best how do you support that reassure mm -hmm. that when in fact your focus is primarily on bottom line or being you know the extraordinary number one recognized individual even though you've had a whole team that supported you to get there 
Now, what I like about this topic is, um, you know, generally when you and I talk about narcissism, we're talking about narcissists as this third person in the room with us, right? Mm -hmm. they're, this, they're this other thing out there. Um, but what's fascinating about this particular subject is that, you know, a lot of my own self-sabotage in terms of my own businesses and my experiences in entrepreneurship and owning companies, I can actually trace back to some of these things that we're going to discuss in terms of how the, um, the, the darker sides of, let's say, of narcissism creep up into a person who may not generally regard themselves as a narcissist. And I know that's a, that's a, a, a dicey statement in itself because narcissists don't say they're narcissists generally. Um, but there is a, there is this balance, right, of high degree of self-awareness, that healthy narcissism. And I actually spoke with Dr. Malcolm, Craig Malcolm, Mm -hmm. Malkin, I always say Malkin, um, mm -hmm. on his book in the, in the spectrum and how everybody's got this in us, you know, yeah. it's, it's necessary for survival to be ego driven and at times, um, but it shows up worse in other people than, um, than others. And it varies from time to time in situation to situation. And, uh, you know, I had, I felt like if I looked at, you know, life overall for me from business to personal parenting and everything that the business environment seemed to trigger that out or tease, let's say not trigger, but tease out that personality of superhero mentality. And I admit like even some of my branding has capes. Um, and, and, and so in a business environment, I definitely had more of the characteristics of being that, um, I'm going to take charge. I'm going to rule the world. And, you know, um, and in times it was good and inspiring. And at times if I got into conflict with somebody else whose way, you know, they wanted it their way and it was two people fighting over whose way it was going to be, then I was baited in. And those were the moments at which I found, you know, my ground falling out from underneath me because, um, they were unwinnable fights. They were situations that were avoidable. They were all the, you know, the things that we could have like prevented with some degree of self-awareness. So what does it seem, you know, about this business setting that could be doing this out of people that might not otherwise think of themselves as narcissists? And the reason why I ask that is because I want us to think about ourselves in this interview and not think about that third person narcissist that's out there that we, that we deal with. Because my experience is, is that this can be a, an insidious way of, of hurting us in our business relationships more so than we actually would think it would be. Does that make um, sense? Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And it's, it's a great question. And again, as Craig Malkin mentions, and I talk about this too, that, you know, we have to think about narcissism along a spectrum and that there is, there are times when we can all find ourselves sort of falling into somewhere along that spectrum. I think the business world is just, in some ways, it's an inevitable place where we will be tested because of the nature of competition. You know, business is a place where, in the same way that you'll find it happening, like in the athletic, you know, world, <clears throat> excuse me, sometimes in the academic world too, but business, you know, there's competition and there is often hierarchy, right? So you have different hierarchy and there's striving to get to the top and who you're really up against in getting there and what you're willing to do or kind of poised to do to make that happen. And that's where narcissistic types type of traits or even just forget the word narcissism. Let's just think being highly self-absorbed, highly self-focused, um, a little too self-directed where you're not having that balance of me and others um, can get in the way. 
and will, again, it can lead to sometimes incredible outcomes, but at what cost to your relationships with others? At what cost in terms of the impact on others? And again, there may be no intention to do harm, and yet you know, the outcome can still be harmful. So we want to be careful. We want to be um, aware that this is a com competition. When you're in business, you are, you know, whether you like it or not, you're competing, <laughs> you know, right. sometimes you're competing with yourself. And so that can be another issue. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, they're called competitors. Yeah. <laughs> you know, right. they're, they're your competitors. So, right. yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm curious too, and I've made this speculation again, just off of my own personal observations is that, uh, people who want to be entrepreneurs and have their own companies, um, you know, that there may be some, to me, some concerns that, that, that need or that desire could be rooted in something that's less than healthy. Like for example, they want to start their own business because they don't want to work with other people and they don't want to take orders from someone else. And that that might be um, a very unsteady foundation to begin to build a business from. Is that something that um, you guys observed or talked about um, in this personality of a, of a, the entrepreneurial type as being, you know, uh, maybe driven in a way that um can oh yeah i mean it, apart. It, it's not so typical in terms of the work we were looking at with organizations but definitely would be true of those who are um, entrepreneurs like sort of founding their own businesses and starting their own businesses with that exact motivation that you just outlined which is i can't work for other people um i can't be told what to do by someone else this is a problem in leadership across the board, but for entrepreneurs, it may be a motivational driver. It's why they start their own companies or they start their own businesses. And it's problematic because you know, inevitably you're going to be dealing with someone else. You're going to have to encounter someone else. And if your style is to be non-reciprocal or non-collaborative, then you know, chances are your business at some end, at some angle is going to suffer even if, if in fact it's, it's soaring at first, at some angle it's going to suffer, at least emotionally, interpersonally, it will suffer. But the business itself may actually um, have, have problems later on. Mm -hmm. Now, we're, through the research and kind of looking at the personalities, especially in leadership, um, where are these patterns or of behaviors rooted? What did you see? And we talk about maladaptive behaviors and schemas and stuff like that. Um, what does your research show and your experience show on where this, this type of personality um, and behavior that we see in leadership kind of comes from? A couple of different places. I mean, some of it is really just monkey see, monkey do. And so it's legacies. You know, you'll see legacies of people who are just following a path that has, you know, generations behind it. And so, you know, one becomes a leader because my father, my mother was a leader, my grandfather was a leader, and I end up in the same position. But more often than not, what we're seeing are what we call these compensatory strategies. So it is not uncommon to find that these extraordinary leaders started out with a lot of insecurity, started out with... Um, feeling the burden of maybe being that, again, not unlike narcissists, although I'm trying to separate it because mm -hmm. they're not all classic narcissistic types or have narcissistic personality disorder, but they still have, what they have in common might be this super drive to be performers, super performers, 
And some of that is compensation for having had nothing, for having been teased or bullied when they were very young, for being awkward or different or, you know, scrawny. Um, so it's all about creating this empire of security where no one can touch me, no one can hurt me. I'm the best of the best. Um, for some, it's winning approval because it acts as a substitute for nurturing. So if I can win people's approval, have recognition, really be touted as number one, make the most money, earn the most for the company, then that's like a security blanket. It's like a nurturing type of experience, not really nurturing. And of course, it doesn't necessarily really fill the void, but it acts as a substitute, at least for the time. There's, you know, there's a lot of negative consequences that can occur as a result of this to health and wellness and relationships when there is this um, dominated emphasis on you know, performance and um, expectations that are unrealistic for those who you're leading uh, in the company. And some are stellar, you know, some are incredible at being able to do this very well in spite of those early maladaptive schemas. But to, to be clear on your question, um, very often what we find in the roots are a lot of insecurities, um, abuse in some cases, uh, neglect, and sometimes that kind of overemphasis on your work is your worth. So do your best, get to the top, and then you can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to answer to anybody. Mm -hmm. And that becomes part of the driving pattern. Mm -hmm. I, um, uh, I'll throw in there too, uh, again, from personal experience is, uh, you know, invalidating. Um, so growing up in, um, in one of the topics that we've talked about here is emotionally immature parents and, um, and being um, who your genuineness is being disregarded and just kind of ignored out of, out of the need to manipulate you or get you to fit a little bit more tightly and nicely into a box that the parent needs you to fit into because they don't have the tools emotionally to, you know, kind of let you be who you are. And, um, and I know for me, that was a very, you know, resonant theme in life of feeling like at the end of the day, like, you know, my own family didn't really know me. Like they didn't, they didn't, there was no effort. They didn't seem to try, they didn't know what to do with it. Um, you know, there was a, an issue of some intellectual differences, you know, when I was identified as gifted, that actually made it hard in my family because then it became a, a point of being teased for that. It became a, um, you know, I don't know what to do with this child, you know, kind of thing. And it became very isolating. And so I feel that everything that you talked about there is, is something that um, drove me at a very young age, you know, like I said, I've journaled and at the bottom of my journals, it was really sad for me one day to go back and read through them and see at the bottom of someday I'll show everyone. Mm -hmm. over and over like at the end of the day someday I'll show everyone because that yeah. was my drive the 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 birthplace of my drive was feeling like I've got to do something bigger and better each time for somebody to finally see me mm -hmm. and so when I excelled in athletics and when I excelled in um in academics and that got put up on the the um the refrigerator magnet that was about the only time that anything I'd done I felt had been acknowledged. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I then carried that into what I did in business as, you know, I need to keep proving. And if anybody didn't listen to me, um, after I'd thoughtfully considered all the scenarios, I took that as a personal attack. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that was, I think, probably one of my biggest um, things that I had to deal with was being triggered at work by invalidating comments or people that reacted um, disproportionate to the situation. And I had no idea that I was just getting pissed off at my family all over again instead of, you know, and the employees around me and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how does somebody, when they, uh, when they, you know, kind of look at that, like, and I'm glad you're, you're talking about this, isn't it narcissist? Although I had said like, yeah, I behave narcissistically, definitely. Um, but I, I, I appreciate you kind of couching this is that this isn't a narcissistic personality disorder to have these drives that get in the way of these relationships, to want to do something and to be really good at something and to be special at something doesn't mean you're a narcissistic person or a a narcissist per se. Right. We can all have narcissistic moments, you know, even, and, and that's just part of the human condition. We can all fall into that trap occasionally or have that as a coping style from time to time, but it's not a narcissistic personality disorder. And again, there are, you know, you mentioned earlier the healthy narcissism, which I look at someone, you know, I look at leaders who, well, even you, look at you and what you're doing. Leaders who have, are inspirational, who are working to lift other people. So it's more than just driving a business. It's also designed to lift other people. I write in my book about Oprah Winfrey, you know, sure, she's, she's a, she's a tough lady, you know, she can... She's not going to take any any crap from anybody. She'll she'll set the record straight. And she had a rough life, so we can see, you know, how this evolved over time. We can see, you know, some of those mechanisms at work for in her survival system that took her, you know, right to the top. And it explains, you know, the leadership development. But there's also a mission in place, and that mission is aimed towards providing something very good. So. Do we make allowances at times? Yeah, you know, we do, because there's, there's something really good that's happening in the end. And I think that, you know, to be an effective leader and to be someone who's also inspiring and someone whose mission is for good, um, whatever that good is, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's subject to our own definition. But I think to, to be able to do that, there are, you do sometimes have to, you know, be a force and you are going to, without intention, perhaps, offend people. It's that ability to be able to see it, you know, when you need to in your personal life and your personal relationships and to repair it. You know, like in the words of John Gottman, who talks about relationships, and he's such a hero in the world of relationships and parenting and has done the research for, I don't know, 40 years or something. He'll say it's not about being perfect in your relationships. It's about being good at the repair, you know, be ready on the repair, um, be genuine in the repair, be thoughtful in your repair, and learn from it so that it's not a, you know, a frequent event. And I think this is a good lesson for leaders, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've done, and, you know, you guys talked about coaching and the effectiveness of coaching, mm-hmm. and sometimes it didn't work. And sometimes you could do it. Uh, you know, what are some strategies for when you have um, a person that uh, could benefit from making some improvements in this area um, yeah. that you've seen from a coaching perspective? Because not everybody needs to necessarily go through a, go to therapy. I mean, I think therapy is amazing, and I, I highly recommend it. Um, but you sometimes have to just start doing some fine tuning yes. um, on a much more regular basis in the context of the business 
you know, where it's, it, it can be effective. Um, what did you see in, in terms of um, what you guys were looking at and some of the people that you work with that's, you know, really, really useful in understanding? Yeah, I mean, what Michael and I found is that coaching, you can use a lot of the strategies that, you know, we use in schema therapy, even in coaching. So strategy like empathic confrontation, which, you know, I've talked about on your program, um, is so useful in coaching. Look for the strength in the individual. What are the strengths? Look for, understand their story. Know a little bit about, you know, what makes them who they are, how they've been put together, you know, where they come from. Understand that it's no one's fault that we have these evolutions of life and, and our personalities become this combination of our temperament and our experience and experiences over time. I mean, even mistakes over time. It's not a fault, but it's a responsibility. So we can say things like, you know, you're amazing. You're incredibly amazing at what you've been able to do to bring this company to the, you know, the, the place it is now, which is strong and thriving. You're so resourceful in your ways of coming up with creative strategies and solutions and we know this is appreciated by your board of directors, by the people that are working for you, the people who are benefiting from, you know, all of the, that which trickles down from your efforts. But, <laughs> right? but, you know, we do feel, or I do feel there's, there's probably something that stands in the way or could threaten this amazing, you know, trajectory that you're on right now. And some of that is really has to do with the way you're relating to the people around you. So it's not the benefits they're getting from the work you're doing, but the way you're actually relating them to them that may be affecting the morale, which could have some negative consequences further down the path. And also it's such a misrepresentation, how unfortunate of who you are truly as a person, that you're not really being seen for who you are and being appreciated for who you are because of this part of you that shows up the way it does when you get rattled. Mm -hmm. So even as a coach, you can use language like this mm -hmm. and you don't have to be a therapist to be able to look at, you know, how someone is put together, i.e. their narrative and, you know, how that might be getting in the way in, in addition to all the wonderful things that it provides, how it may also be getting in the way of their outcome. Hmm. or their mission. I, that's, a, that's a good point on the end there because I think, um, well, of course, because you're the expert in this, of course you make good points. Um, but because I think when it's, the messaging is about what you're doing to other people, there is this, uh, there can be this tendency of like, I don't care. In fact, I, I decided to wear my Joan Jett shirt. Nobody can see this on the camera, but it's, uh, it's got her line on it, which is, I don't give a damn about my bad reputation. And there is a, you know, sometimes there is this bravado attitude of, hey, that's just the way that I am and I've got results. So people right. can just suck it if they don't like the way that I work, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you're able to turn the conversation of like, yeah, but think of how much better you could do. Your results, your personal results would improve yeah. if you had more people rowing together with you rather than the resistance that you have. Um, mm -hmm. that they won't go along. And I think that sometimes that is like the key, the clicks, because you make it about them instead of about 
the, the other humans, which we really want the other humans' lives to improve, mm -hmm. um, but that might be the missing factor in there for yeah. some people, right? If they can't yeah. make that empathetic connection with, you know, humanity outside of themselves. That's very good. I really love that. The rowing and the resistance. That's a, that's a beautiful metaphor. And I, and I think we can, there will be certain types. Again, this is what sort of separates the narcissist from someone who's just very um, high focused, you know, they're really, really super focused in their leadership. You know, as a coach, you may not be able to tease it out as easily as a therapist might do, but you mm -hmm. may have some inclinations. Um, the difference is that the narcissist may say, you know, too bad. If they don't like it, they can leave, they can go. Whereas someone else who's just, you know, kind of operating in the bubble may be able to be awakened by that type of knowledge or that type of consult um, when you can say to them, you know, and, and again, it's not, it's that difference between the who and the how, who you are and the message you really want to deliver versus how you become and the message you actually express can be two very different things. And I think coaches can do a phenomenal job in being able to say, let's think about who you are at the core. What is that message that you really want to send? In other words, when I walk out of the room, what do you want me to have solidly imprinted in my mind about your message, your wishes, your intentions, your goals, your ambitions, your expectations of me? What do you want me to know? about how you feel about me as someone who's, I'll use your expression, rowing along with you. What do you want me to know? And then how are you expressing that? What part of you is actually showing up when you send that message? Is it clear or is it a misrepresentation of the actual message itself? Which it often is, mm -hmm. unfortunately, because things like anxiety and fear and distraction or I shouldn't have to take the time to figure out how to say this clearly for you. You should just know what I mean, you know? I shouldn't have to be careful with my language. If I'm in a bad mood, I can just let it fly because I'm the leader, you know, I'm in charge. And here's where ego can become problematic in these moments. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I didn't understand the concept of triggers years ago. And, um, and so when, uh, when I was challenged or invalidated in a business setting, I went right into fight mode. I mean, it was just like the body responded instantly. Yeah. The chest tightened. I was ready to go. And um, obviously that's not the case today. <laughs> um, but, you know, what I do find is interesting, and I want to point this out for people, is that even when you understand triggers and you even start to understand your own personal behaviors, you don't, you don't, the challenges don't stop coming. Meaning I still feel my body tighten up or my chest tighten up in certain circumstances. Um, the difference is, is that now it's my first sign to take my time to like to stop and not to not react. Um, but I haven't, you know, I haven't discovered that, you know, I just don't let things bother me. Well, they bother me still at that very instantaneous reaction. And those are the ones that I go, man, this is deep. This is a big <laughs> wound. It's probably not going to go anywhere. So what am I going to do instead? You know, is my self-aware mature person here. Um, but like I said, you know, figuring out way, seeing now all the times in which I was actually triggered in life and I was triggered in the business sense has been almost, it's been astonishing and, you know, a little bit overwhelming um, at times. But like I said, now the triggers are the calm down moment and slow down, don't do anything until I can figure out first why, you know, where did that signal come from? What did I just hear? 
that made me feel this way or make me, what did I just see in someone's Mm -hmm. body language that made me, you know, go to that? Because again, mine, like you said, comes from um, this invalidation. So usually it's related to somebody making a statement or a comment that generalized what I meant or dismissed what I was saying because they didn't actually hear in my opinion, they didn't hear what I was trying to communicate, which then is like, okay, well, maybe you just need to restate it in a different way, not get angry at them that they didn't hear you the first time. You know, that's the maturation there. Um, But sometimes the response is to do nothing. And that's what I've learned here is uh, Mm -hmm. sometimes I can get triggered. I can get a little upset that no one's listening or they're not hearing what I meant to say. And again, it comes back to, does it matter? You know, you have to ask yourself, is this the hill we die on today <laughs> or not? Um, and then sometimes it does warrant for me to sit there and go, okay, that what's going on here is there's a, pl- a person bullying another person in the meeting where someone else is acting disproportionate. And I do need to be assertive, but I need to be assertive and productive, not aggressive and hostile. And so you kind of balance. And, yeah. um, and so that's been fun <laughs> in business is getting to that. Um, you know, and so I would, you know, is that, is that typical? I mean, I would expect a person who's kind of, you know, self-absorbed or self-driven becoming aware of it doesn't mean suddenly they're just Zen all the time. They're just a different form of if only, yeah, right. <laughs> if only, and, but, but it's, it starts where we start. We start with trying to become more, um, mindful of the triggers, notice your body, because, and, I, and here's a really quick strategy, a kind of quick tip on what we can do. If we always, if we only had the pause button, you know, readily available within ourselves, like we do on everything else, you know, the room, right. I say to my, my clients often, just, and, I, and I've worked with some very, very, you know, highly effective, successful leaders out there in the industry of various types. And this is an interesting concept to them. So I'll share this. If you imagine you had a pause button, you know, you had a pause button, and that pause button would be almost any time you're about to speak, you know, in a way that might be relevant to a partner, a colleague, um, a coworker, a subordinate, even your kids or your partners. But, you know, that button that allows you to stop and ask yourself this question, not what am I going to say? That's what we usually do. What am I going to say? It's not what am I going to say? It's why am I speaking right now? Why am I about to speak? What is it that I want my listener to hear and to get? Do I want them to just get that I'm angry out of control, like losing my mind right now? Or do I want them to get that I'm deeply frustrated because I'm worried that if we can't resolve this, something bad might happen, whatever the bad thing might be. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, so that's why I'm speaking, because I'm worried and I want them to know that I'm concerned that something bad might happen. Now, the what am I going to say can flow a little easier, right? Because I've got to find words that match this intention, this motivation for speaking. I mean, this is something I work on with narcissistic clients all the time. What is it? What is it that you want to send? What's the message? Why are you talking right now? Why are you telling that to me right now? Why are you sharing that with me? Often it's because they're trying to win approval or impress me or, you know, feel like they're in a higher rank, you know, put me down. So why? Why are you speaking right now? What's the message you want to send? If we could all pause and ask that question, then the words that flow and the 
tempo and the gesture and the pace and the pitch and the volume and all of that in our voice would be informed by that intention. It's that's, not easy, right? But, no, it's brilliant though. Um, I mean, that's like right there. Uh, that's the right, you know, that is the right question to ask um, because I think sometimes people, we, it's a tendency, right? If we respond right from, excuse me, the emotional state, Mm-hmm. It, uh, that's usually where we can trip up or say something we, we, uh, with consequences that we didn't mean or intend, mm-hmm. um, right. hurt someone's feelings. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as you're talking about that, I was like, yeah, that's, that's where I learned that sometimes saying nothing was the right answer because mm-hmm. I want to say something, but what I want to say is I just want to prove that they're wrong and I'm right. And, it, and then really quickly assessing that, is that relevant to what's going on in this room right now? Mm. Like, do I need to do that? Do I need to, to show off at this point in time? And that was a lot of re-regulating that happened. And, I, and you, we do see that right out of people where you're just like, dude, just calm down. <laughs> you know, you wish you could push a, a, a pause button on somebody <laughs> else because they instantly become <laughs> defensive, mm-hmm. right? Like a go-to is a defensiveness that, um, uh, you know, isn't really helping anything. Right. It just maybe escalating situations, you know, mm. even more so. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we can confront almost anyone when we know that we can tolerate the reaction of the other, the one we're confronting. So, you know, even if it's someone who has, you know, we've said it as beautifully and thoughtfully and, and eloquently as possible. And the reaction is, you know, what are you trying to make me feel stupid? You know, what are you trying to act like you're superior? You know, you get that reaction. If you have some appreciation for what you're up against in this individual, and you know that they don't have a pause button yet, they haven't installed one, then you can tolerate that. We can tolerate anything when we don't let it become personal to us. And we recognize that, you know, they're struggling in their own space right now. I don't like the response and it doesn't feel good, but it doesn't knock me over. It doesn't stop me from being able to say, hmm, good for me. I was still my own advocate, you know, mm-hmm. good for me. I still used my voice. I wasn't subjugated in that moment. Mm-hmm. Now there's like, I, I kind of bucketed this in two different types of, um, which is terrible. I mean, we don't exist in just two buckets here, but, you know, I, I think of the way um, some of this dysfunction or maladaptiveness shows up in us um, that is self-focused is we've either got the person who drives and pushes because of their unrelenting standards and they think everybody has to do it their way and, and, and on and on and on. And then you've got people that um, become, like I said at the beginning of the, of the episode here, always get their feelings hurt and are always deeply wounded. Now, to me, those feel like two sides of the same coin, though, of, um, of this, I, I believe in myself but one side is I have difficulties expressing what I need to do. So I'm frustrated most of the time. And when I can't do that, I'm feeling wounded on a regular basis. And that comes out in, you know, some sort of hostilities or lack of, um, lack of engagement, demotivation, whatever, versus the other person who feels the exact same way, but it's expressed in a much more controlling and forceful um, way. What would you recommend for that person that's on that other side of the coin that still feels like they're, they're equally invalidated, but are, um, you know, are feeling more wounded and hurt. And that comes out sometimes in, you know, 
kind of negative ways in which they treat and push people away in their own company. Is that, am I, am I clear with how I'm asking that question? I think so. I mean, I think what you're describing is really the survival system, you know, that we have um, kind of in, in the broadest terms, there's a finite number of ways we can respond when we feel triggered. So if you're the person who is easily wounded is more perhaps highly sensitive, just in your temperament, easily wounded because of earlier life experiences that have not been resolved as, as fully as they need to be. And so you're more frequently prone to feeling like you're being picked on or put down or disregarded in some way. You know, there's deeper work that probably needs to be done. But if your reaction is to, um, I mean, you can, you can fight back and you can attack mm -hmm. the person who you feel like is putting you down. You can just avoid people in general or avoid statements altogether. You can submit to it by, you know, just try my best to be better and better and better and to, to win you over or at least avoid, you know, the, the heartache of having to feel bad again. So, you know, we have to think in terms of what is my tendency in my survival system? Do I tend to use that under what conditions? And is it really working for me? Because it doesn't really work, right? It has a self-defeating outcome. Mm -hmm. um, so it's how do I engage my healthy adult to get on board? We need that healthy adult to be able to take a look and differentiate old experience from what's happening in the here and now. There's a difference between feeling disappointed when someone lets you down versus feeling devastated as if you've just been, you know, annihilated, your character has been assassinated. And that's pretty strong and pretty unbearable and usually lives in the land of once upon a time. So we've got to get that differentiation to be able to see ourselves standing on solid ground in the here and now, capable of being disappointed, even being frustrated and upset, but not devastated, where it becomes so unbearable that we have to resort to our survival system in order to try to fight back or to you know surrender or to run as fast as we can that's only going to happen when it's really coming from that you know that time warped space mm -hmm. interesting that's great um you know i during the day the day job air quotes around this um i actually am a director of recruiting for a company and so very familiar with the use of personality tests yeah. um, because they are good for uh you know just coaching staff they're really good for mm -hmm. um, identifying jobs and you know what are good behaviors and drives and so it's you know psychometrics is used a lot in business because um, having conversations and having uh, somebody being able to express exactly where they land on their drives and behaviors and, and mm -hmm. everything is really difficult, but these tests are actually pretty useful. And in our organization, um, there's ones like Myers-Briggs. So for mm -hmm. people that are listening, what I'm talking about is like Myers-Briggs test, DISC test. Um, the Enneagram is even Enneagram. I'm totally mispronouncing that, but Enneagrams are the same thing. And then the one that we use is predictive index. And I know that for us, that's been invaluable because while it may not know the root of the drives and behaviors, seeing it mapped out and seeing how different everybody is, that some people are very like myself, I'm very independent. Mm -hmm. You know, my drive for independence is really strong. My drive to influence people and events is very strong. While on the other end, there are people that want to be more collaborative and need to get and weigh in, you know, however, and make sure everybody feels good about the decision. I'm the one that's like, I'm willing to take a risk and go for it if nobody yeah. likes it, you know? Yeah. And when you see this mapped out and you lay everybody out on the floor or on the table, you go, wow, no wonder. 
Um, so what are your thoughts about the psychometrics and tests like that in terms of helping kind of maybe zero in on sources and understanding when people do exhibit? Because when I looked at that independent and then I look at my flexibility, which is my drive for, you know, my drive for structure is very low, it, mm -hmm. meaning I can exist in an environment of where there's no rules and I can make them up as I go versus being in a room with people that are all need structure. Yes. I found that, oh gosh, that makes more sense. So while you're okay with, you know, this pandemic floating around going, we'll just see what happens in a month. There are people around me going, oh my God, I need to know what's going to happen tomorrow, like right now. <laughs> and you get frustrated with them. Like, why can't you just go with the flow? Right. Um, but it does reveal a lot about that interpersonal dynamics. Um, did you have much experience using that or have thoughts about how that applies? Yeah, it definitely reveals how we become, right, under certain conditions. So what you're describing is what we would call in, in schema therapy, the model I practice, we'd call that a mode, right? People have their own coping modes and particular styles and ways of being under certain conditions. And some of that is... Um, related to what we learned a long time ago and some of that is perhaps new constructs that we've developed over time for dealing with the world dealing with other people I was thinking as you were describing it though that it would be so fascinating to look at the index you use and and then compare that with a schema questionnaire which would answer the question of why right so maybe why would someone be more risk-taking more adventurous more, um, you know, cultivating of ideas, someone who's more crafty or thoughtful versus someone who's like, ah, put my head under the covers. If you look at a schema questionnaire, you might be able to look and say, ah, oh, that's so interesting, right? That, you know, here I am when I look at my schema questionnaire, ugh, I rank really high on deprivation, emotional deprivation, meaning maybe emotional beliefs like i can't count on people to be there for me i can't count on people to really know me or support me or guide me or protect me and so look at me i've developed this side of me that's like i can do it all i'll take care of me i'm super autonomous i don't have to look to anyone right and that's not so surprising you can also have someone who emerges from that particular type of schema with the I'm just going to hide, you know, or I'm, I'm going to ask everybody to take care of me. I, I'm going to make sure I, I cling as tight as I can and not let go because, you know, if you let go for one second, they disappear. And there's the survival system at work again, right? Mm -hmm. So it'd be fascinating to, to pair up the two. I mean, we do have a mode inventory, which sort of captures some of what you've described. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting because we're looking at narratives. Like, why am I who I am? How, why do I become how I become? that who and that how, right? How I become under certain conditions. And it's very fascinating, but it's also that, you know, that inroad for being able to look at how to make change, yeah. how to be more healthy. Uh, what I like about this too is, again, I work with business owners, entrepreneurs, people that want to start businesses. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is an important um, conversation that I have sometimes with clients, uh, especially solopreneurs, mm -hmm. that, you know, when, when they are struggling with procrastination, becoming demotivated, yeah. um, organization, um, uh, even their financial literacy, their communication mm -hmm. styles is, um, is beginning to uncover you know, some what some of those hurdles may have, you know, really be coming from where those obstacles might actually mm -hmm. be stemming from. 
And, uh, and sometimes I've said, I've coached people out of entrepreneurship because once they started to understand a little bit about what they really love to do, who they really are and got more in touch of what really drives them, yes. uh, they just found that they don't want to work for themselves. They want somebody else <laughs> to handle some of those details and, um, or they go into a different field, you know, altogether because they were, you know, put, putting forth or playing out the schema or the role, um, that had been laid before them and didn't realize that they had an option to, um, it, I guess mostly in family, family dynamics, they didn't have, they didn't know they had choices. You know, they just thought that, you know, what they had was what they had. Now is your schema, uh, model questions, are those available for people to take? Is that something, or do they have to work with a, with a therapist like you, um, to have it administered? Yeah. There is a version of the test that's available um, through Reinventing Your Life, which was the book written for the public by Jeffrey Young, who's the founder of Schema Therapy. So the, and there's versions of that online, too. There's the client's guide, which you can read um, to Schema Therapy. And there's, again, there's a version of the questionnaire, which is available in Reinventing Your Life. So, yeah, you can, people can take the inventory. And, again, you have to really open up your your soul to to try to be as honest as you can and really look at it not in terms of necessarily what's happening right this moment but what feels like it's been a trend since you were little something that may have happened early in your life and occasionally shows itself in your life in the here and now so you know again because there's a lot of false negatives that show up on inventories right yep. and some of that will come out of just I've, I don't, I'm not, I can't get in touch with it because I've learned how to distance myself from those realities. And some of it is I'm too humiliated to look at the truth about this. So you really want to go to that with a very open heart, honest soul, open your mind and, and take a look at what those life themes might be because they can, as you said, they can get in the way. I had a client who once, you know, with some coaching, he was able to see that while he gravitates all the time towards complex abundant experiences he thrives in simplicity and when you see that difference between your gravitational pull and where you really thrive as you were talking about the procrastinators you know where is he going to do his best where is he going to be his best self when it comes to you know operating a business or working as a as a colleague or a team player um, i think this is all really incredibly important information. And while the ego may be driving the bus going, oh, you can do this, you know, this is your idea. You don't want to share it with anybody else. And we'll just, you know, make it, we'll expand it, and make it even bigger. He says, you know, but I have attentional problems. I don't focus very well. I tend to get scattered. I really do need people to bounce ideas off of. I really do thrive in a more simple and collaborative environment. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> mm-hmm. Watch out that, for that ego. <laughs> <laughs> that's super, yeah, that's super insightful. Well, I'll have links to those. I'll try to find the ones that you recommended there so that people can actually sit down mm -hmm. and, and, and think about it. It does uh, to seem, like I said, I'm an advocate for therapy. So if somebody were experienced with being able to kind of discuss the results of that with somebody, I know with like the one that we use, Predictive Index, um, you have to be trained. You can't just go find a free test online to take yeah. it because... It, it reveals things that do require some explanation or some validation and verification with yeah. a person who's trained to administer the test and understand the test and also not to blindly label the person as the profile, you know, name that they got and then just categorically dump them into, you know, one of 17 boxes and say they can never leave or that they can never, you know, um, you know, get out of there and that they're, you know, unsuited for, 
you know, only three jobs or something like that. So there is a, there is a, a problem with that that can happen. So, and I should put the caveat in there too, you know, even with the schema questionnaire that the abbreviated version in the book be, gets you to begin to open the door to maybe some realizations that weren't so clear, but you know, the full, you know, 203 statement inventory that we use in treatment really should be done with the facilitation of a therapist to, to help you to fully understand, and particularly in places where it, there may be some, some blocks to being mm -hmm. able to see it as clearly as you might. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, good caveat there. So, um, so if we're, as we're winding this down here a little bit, uh, do you have any, you know, I, I know you mentioned something about a tip for, you know, asking yourself first, like, why do I want to say what I want to say? But are there any other suggestions that you might uh, have for somebody to help draw their self-awareness in a better, clearer way to see if they are um, uh, kind of experiencing some of these leadership qualities that are pushing people away from them rather than drawing people towards them that, you know, could be undermining. Cause like I, you know, for me, I dealt with this for years um, and, and didn't know only in retrospect was I able to go back and go, Oh, look at all that, <laughs> you know, all that great information. But in the moment it was really difficult for me. And, um, and, you know, you talked about that schema therapy, um, that inventory is probably one thing, are there other ways because we do have denial as a default setting for us to protect ourselves. And so it does make it difficult for us to objectively look, you know, at ourselves through a mirror there, but are there other ways for people to, to kind of, um, to try and test out to see if they can't start to go, Oh, maybe that is the issue. Maybe, huh, maybe I am like that. Maybe I do need to, you know, become a little bit more aware of, you know, what my behavioral patterns look like at work yeah. in that way. Well, I think this was the, What's interesting about 360s, you know, in corporations where, you know, employees get to rate their, uh, their bosses, um, although it's a tricky issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, when you're doing an evaluation of your own boss and they're looking at the feedback. I always encourage people in leadership roles, managers, supervisors, to ask for that feedback. Just as a therapist, as we would do in the treatment room, I ask not only how do you think the therapy's going, but how do you feel being with me? What's it like being in relationship with me? And if I know that this is someone who seems to be, you know, I mean, someone in business may not be trained. They're usually not trained to understand all of the psychological, you know, elements of their employees, um, nor should it be their responsibility to do so. But you might see something about their temperament that may be telling. And if you know this is someone who seems a little inhibited or shy or sensitive, um, you're going to want to be a little more persistent at making it safe for them to give you feedback. What's it like working with me? What's it like for you? You know, I know this is hard. Again, empathy, right? I, I know this isn't an easy question to answer since I'm your boss or I'm your supervisor, and you may be fearful of repercussions, but I'm really asking, you know, very openly without judgment, because I want this feedback. I want to know, like, where I can make it better. I want to know where you know, it's working and where it's not working. You know, I really want to hear both sides, anything that could be strengthened. So I, I would say it's a hard thing to do. And even when I supervise other therapists, they're like, yikes, you know, but ask the question, what's it like being in the room with me? Mm -hmm. Does it feel like I'm pushing you sometimes? Hmm, sometimes. Yeah. That's hard, isn't it? Hard for you to tell me that, isn't it? Yeah, I'd like you to be able to tell me that. So what could I do to make it easier for you to tell me that? Something that, you know, leaders can do too. Mm -hmm. 
What I what I like is uh, that we'll have two two methods in there or two things will outcomes will come. Um, one is the ability to hear from your employees or coworkers and colleagues. But then once you once they say the words and they land, <laughs> you can then feel and then start to say, oh, look at that. <laughs> you know, and so it, there's there is that double edge to it that is actually pretty powerful. And it's like, oh, because yeah. it, it's not easy to ask for critiques of who we are. And so we don't. And it's not easy because we don't like the way we feel when we hear right. it. But if we hear it and then we can go, okay, now I'm going to take this with me out of this room and out of this meeting. I'm going to think about what I just heard. I'm going to think about why I felt the way about it, not necessarily trying to, which we do, is we defend ourselves and go, they're wrong, they're, they're incorrect, they're not seeing it. But flipping that around to saying, what if they're 100% correct? And then how do I actually um, feel about that? And where do I think that comes from? And I know, you know, for me, my tipping point, I will say, came from a conversation where I stopped arguing in my head and verbally with the person. And I just, I'm going to now for a minute, just sit and think that everything they're saying about me is 100% accurate. And mm -hmm. I left. And, um, and that right there did actually change. So I love that as a, as a tip for great. people to do that. Um, it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. You have yeah. to be ready to listen. You're listening for patterns. And you're listening for your strengths, but you're also listening for the challenges. And if you can keep that word, you know, challenges in there, obstacles, places where you can work to make it better. It, it, it's all good, you know, mm -hmm. ultimately. But it is hard to hear. It is hard to listen to. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, we need our sturdy, healthy adult self to be present when we ask that question. So we really can learn and grow from that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you're um, self-motivated and self-absorbed, think of it this way, that getting all that feedback again gets everybody rowing with you and gets you closer to your objectives. Mm -hmm. um, and so having a growth mindset about, you know, uh, challenges, understanding where your improvements lie is just you getting closer to whatever it is your goals and aspirations really are and not pulling you down from achieving those, but help lifting you up to getting closer to them. And I think maybe that for anybody that's been afraid to ask that question, maybe that helps with kind of reframing it in that way. So yeah. yeah. Well, Wendy, this has been a wonderful conversation. And, I'm and again, like you, I'm really glad we were able to do this. It was, uh, feels really good to think and talk about something else other than what's going on outside of our windows at the moment yeah. here. So, um, because it, it will be over. And when we come out, there will be lots of people reentering the workforce, some people starting businesses all over again, some people going back um, with a whole different mindset about mm -hmm. themselves, their family, their organizations. And, um, and definitely viewing people. And as you noted, I want to point this out, when we re-enter the workforce back again, that's going to come with another level of emotions stirred up and feelings stirred up. And so we're not done with this, you know, returning. Um, there'll be a reintegration and a re-onboarding mm -hmm. of ourselves back into life again that will, um, that knowing this kind of stuff and having this understanding of each other um, is, I think, always valuable and important because we spend so much time at work, our colleagues, yeah. you know, more time with them than we do really with our families. And so I think this was a good conversation. And so mm -hmm. I appreciate you doing this with me. And I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's always a treat. I love being with you. So thanks. Thanks Thank thank you for listening to one broken mom you can find podcast notes on my website at amiqueracone.com and there i'll provide all links to all of the resources that we mentioned on the episode 
Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for other episodes, feel free to send me an email. And if you are interested in sponsoring the show, I'd love to have you be a part of the team. Finally, if you like what you hear, please share the podcast and leave a review so that others can find it. We are all here to get better together. I am the host, Ami Kurkoni, and as always, I am super grateful to have you as a listener. Until next time, have a great day.